forget. Sweet. Has this been an adventure of a weekend or what? I love adventures. I love the chance to do something that you wouldn't ordinarily... You're listening to a recording of a talk I gave many years ago at a Young Life camp in northern Arizona in front of about 500 high school students and their leaders. This was actually my first time speaking at a Young Life camp, and I was really nervous and and really excited at the same time. Public speaking is (laughs) something that I love, which I know may sound crazy to a lot of people. But uh, yeah, I loved it. I loved a lot of things about working for Young Life, actually. I loved that I got to mentor high school students and lead these college volunteers. It felt like I was actually making a difference in the world. But there was a huge price associated with it. It meant keeping my sexuality a secret. Very few people knew that I was gay, and if word had gotten out, it would have meant the end of that job. I did that for a while, but things started happening in my mid to late 20s that caused me to start re-examining some of the things that I believed about the Bible and about God, about my faith. And ultimately, one of those questions became, what do I really believe about homosexuality? Do I actually believe God is opposed to this? While I was asking these questions and ultimately coming to a new conclusion, the internal pressure of not being honest was growing and growing every day. Even though I had a lot of fear around coming out, I reached a point where it felt like I had no other option. So I quit that job with Young Life two years ago, started coming out to friends, and started trying to figure out what was I going to do with my life now. It was a few months after leaving that I met Alicia, and she was one of those people that I just immediately liked. We both had similar background. We grew up in conservative churches. We both went into full-time ministry, her as a pastor, myself as a Young Life area director. We both had been coming to new conclusions about same-sex marriage and transgender identities, and we both left our jobs in ministry in order to come out. And so it was so good to be able to sit with someone who who knew what I was going through and just talk about what that experience was like and, and talk about God and theology and all these new things that we were learning. And then one day she came to me with an idea. Well, several years ago, I started really seriously studying the Bible and issues of sexuality. And I was at the time pretty in line with the conservative and traditional ideas about sexuality and about same-sex marriage and gender transition and all those things. And through like intensive study of scripture and reading people on both sides of the issue, I just became really convinced um, that I had not been correct. And having more information and learning more about it um, really brought about a shift for me. And I realized that a lot of conservative Christians don't have that information and they haven't heard different ideas and different perspectives. And that I would have really loved to have had a podcast that would have shared those things to me, made them accessible, made them easier to access. And I just wanted to be able to provide that for other people who want to learn about the Bible and human sexuality. And so I talked to you and said, hey, Steve, I want to do this podcast. So that's what we're all about. If you're someone who's curious about how Christians could affirm same-sex marriage, transgender identities, and the Bible— then we are so excited to have this conversation with you. So without further ado, I'm Steve McCarthy. And I'm Alicia Johnston. And this 
is Open Bible Podcast. I met Jeff at a PFLAG meeting. PFLAG is a kind of a support group for LGBTQ people and their families. And I met him there when I was starting on the very difficult road of coming out. And he got up to share his story, and I was kind of blown away entirely by what he shared about himself and about his life. And I told Steve, hey, uh, this is this guy, this is his story. Like, and, and as soon as I shared a couple things, he was like, we need to have him on our podcast. And he's just such a, I mean, you're going to hear him, but he's an amazing person. And his, his life and his experience and just seeing him challenged so many of the easy preconceptions and just the really simplified boxes that I'd had in my mind about so many issues of gender. And um, I think you're going to love this story. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Dorsey. Okay, so you, you're you born and your family is raising you as a as, female? Yeah, that's kind of the tricky part because, yeah, technically, yes, as a female, but up until 10 years old, they kind of let me be who I wanted to be. Uh-huh. You know, like... Because you always felt like a boy. Yeah, like Christmas time, I got guns and things like that. I didn't get girl toys. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't playing with the doll babies. <laughs> yeah. That's so fascinating. So... Do you think your parents knew what was going on there? Uh, no, they didn't know. Okay. I mean, they knew I was different. Yeah. And my mother says she knew from before I was born. She's like, God just told me there was something different about you, even before you were born. She's like, God told me there was something different about you. So I was always different. And I have two sisters, and they used to try to get me to be a girl. I have a, my brother who I adored. He died in 95, but I was like his little brother. I did everything with him, and he just let me be me. But my sisters at the time, they would want to curl my hair and put makeup on me and just make me miserable, and I hated it. (laughs) And um, But up until I was about 10 years old, they kind of just let me be. And then when I hit puberty, everybody's like, oh, you're a girl, and you got to start doing this and this and this and this. I'm like, you people. In my mind, I mean, it was in the 70s, something, and you people are crazy. I'm a boy. I don't know what you're doing to me here. And then when I got into high school and I took health and I'm like, okay, guess maybe I am a girl and I'm crazy because you go to health class and they start talking about this stuff and you're like, okay, I'm crazy. But in the seventies, I kept it all quiet because there was nobody to talk to. There was no books. There was no internet. It was just like, I'm in this world by myself. I'm this free. I'm just for freaking nature. And then when I hit 15, my voice started getting deeper, and I started growing facial hair. And I'm like, okay, this isn't what they told me was supposed to happen in health class, so I'm really a freak. So I became a recluse. And I just found out a few years ago, my sister, they used to call me the hermit because I stayed in my room. I would play music. I played guitar, read books, and just isolated myself. At school, I got bullied extreme because I was different. I was very different. And there was this group of boys that used to put set mousetraps in my locker so that when I reached in, that it would snap on me. And I got to where I, I was smart. I didn't want to go to school, though. And so I would stay home from school. And um, I was raised in a very religious atmosphere, very fundamentalist atmosphere. 
and I would hear stuff from the pulpit, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to hell. I'm this, and I went to those fire and brimstone preaching things. And years later, I tell my mother now, I'm like, do you remember? I used to go to every altar call, every altar call, and I would lay on the altar and I would cry and hope I don't get emotional, but I would cry and plead and beg with God. Make me normal. I don't care, boy, girl. Just make me normal. I'm not normal. I'm a freak. And I left home at 16. I was on my way home from work one night. I was 16 years old. I had quit high school. And we lived on top of the hill. And there was a reservoir at the bottom of the hill. I thought, you know what? I can't do this. I'm just going to afford this van. And I'm going to kill myself. I just can't live like this. Because if my family knows about me, They'll never speak to me. <laughs> and But something, God, stopped me. And at the bottom of that hill, there's a big parking lot, and I went in there, and I thought, okay, I got to leave. So I left home at 16. I had heard that there were sex changes or things, and I thought, I don't know anything about it. I'm 16 years old. It's 1984, but I'm going to go find this. So I left home at 16 years old. To go, And I thought, I'm going to do whatever it is. My family probably will never speak to me again, but I don't care. I've got to have some kind of peace in my life. Eventually, when I was 26, I moved to Nashville. So I finally, after I graduated from college, I moved to Nashville, and that's where I started to be more true to myself. And at first, you know, I came out, okay, I'm, I'm gay. So I came out. It wasn't, didn't fit. There was still something more. Because I still looked like this. I mean, I shaved every day because I had facial hair. Most people... Call me sir. I was thrown out of many, many restrooms whenever I was still my previous self. I mean, I, I experienced all that. I met this girl and we started dating. She, I, I actually, we got married before it was even legal because I had changed my name to Jeffrey. And I looked like this and nobody questioned it. When I, we, me and my wife got online and we started looking for things. And we found um, transgender. We're like, oh, that's it. That's the answer. I'm transgendered. I didn't know any transgender people. So I went and I went to the therapist and I told the therapist, because you had back then it was a little harder than it is today. It was a whole different world, even in 2003. So you had to go through the therapist. You had to see the therapist for so long. And then you were allowed to go and get hormones, which I really didn't need them. But... <laughs> So I went, we went, made the appointment, we go to the therapist, and she, I, we walk, and she's like, oh, what were you here for? I said, I want to tr- transition. I'm transgendered. She said, okay, so first thing you're going to need to do is shave and start dressing and everything like a female. And I'm like, stop, wait, back, back, back up here. No, I want to become a man. And she looked at me, she said, I have no clue what to do with you. <laughs> and so she let me go to the doctor to get hormones. She, she signed off on it, and I go to the doctor, where me and my wife are sitting in there, and she's like, okay, these hormones are going to make your skin softer. And I'm like, stop. <laughs> wait, 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 no, I want to transition to be a man. And she's like, I'll be right back. <laughs> so my doctor in Nashville, he used to say, you're my best patient. I said, I came in here looking like this. No wonder. <laughs> you didn't do anything. You know, I do take testosterone. It made my hair fall out. That was kind of what I got. <laughs> made the rest of it fall out. I had a widow's peak. So I go, and I go to get my driver's license changed. I go went to court, got my name legally changed to Jeffrey. So I take that paperwork to the driver's license place, and 
they say, okay, we can change your name, but we can't change your sex. You have to have a letter from a surgeon. So I had a friend that was a Metro police officer. I said, if you pull me over and look at me, he said, yeah, I'd wonder what's going on. He said, just go downtown and tell them they made a mistake. So I just take my driver's license downtown. <laughs> I walk in. I said, I got my driver's license last week, and you made a mistake. I didn't say what it was. That's all I said. She, oh, geez, they got you as a female. Click, changed it. <laughs> so I, I filed my income tax that year, and the government sent them back to me and said there was something wrong with my Social Security number. So I go down to the Social Security office. I'm like, I filed my taxes. They sent it back, said something's wrong with my Social Security number. The guy looks at me and said, they got you in here as a female. Click. <laughs> <laughs> so presto, I got everything changed without all the documents. Wow, that's remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of the, and so I had, so that's when we went to the courthouse, me and my wife, and here's my documents, you know, here's your driver's license. Okay, you're married. Get married at the courthouse. So I actually, yes, I got married in the state of Tennessee before it was ever legal. <laughs> no questions asked. And then I moved to Arizona, and I had to get, of course, I had to find a doctor. So I could find this doctor from some of the websites that was LGBT friendly. And I'm, I go see him and I tell him this story of growing up and everything. He looks at me and said, have you ever been tested? I'm like, tested for what? And he's like, I think you're intersexed. He said, from what you're telling me, he said, you have some kind of intersex condition. Because this isn't normal. I'm like, thank God. I knew I wasn't normal all my life. <laughs> so he wanted me to see an endocrinologist. And he had, you know, he done a bunch, sent me for a bunch of tests. And I kind of felt like a guinea pig. And I go in there, and the nurse comes in, and she's like, what are you here for? I'm like, where's the doctor? She's like, no, you tell me, and then I'll tell the doctor. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I start telling the story, and she's like, stop, just stop. And she goes and gets the endocrinologist and brings the endocrinologist in, and I tell her my story. And she's like, you have congenital adrenal hyperplasia. I'm like, what? <laughs> she says, I'm 99.99% sure that's what you got. And I just busted down crying. I was 43 years old. And finally had a reason for why I was like this, because my family always explained it away. Oh, some women have facial hair. Some women have deep voices. Some women have receding hairlines. But I got all this stuff. There's something there. I'm not normal. And people tell me not to say that. And I just wasn't mainstream. I was different. And I spent a lot of times, like, looking in the mirror, screaming at myself, you're a freak, you're a freak. You know, you're just a freak of nature growing up and you know up through my adulthood and now all of a sudden I have this she said we're gonna do a test but I'm 99.99 you know you've got congenital adrenal hyperplasia and so she ran the test and sure enough that's what I have and basically it's I inherited two recessive genes one from each parent you get a gene from each parent I have two recessive genes and so when my body tries to make cortisol to deal with stress, it doesn't function right. So there's a break in my code. And so it does make enough to keep me from going in shock, but its byproduct is testosterone. So all my life, it's been making all this, and I've had a very stressful life. So it's been yeah. making all this testosterone, which has caused all the masculinization of me. So now I have my answer. I mean, my dad left when I was seven years old. 
and we had to struggle. So like my life was stressful from the time I was a little kid. So I, all my life I was going through all this stress and my body had this thing. And so it was like making all this extra testosterone, which caused all this stuff because with CAH, there are two forms. There's classical and non-classical. And I have the milder version because the, the other version, it's the only, as far as I know, it's the only intersex condition that can actually kill you. Because if they don't catch it in a baby, because you not only do you not have the cortisol, you don't have the androstrol and androstrol. And so you can actually go into your bodies and produce some salt until you, babies actually die oh. if it's not caught. They do do tests now to make sure. But, you know, they have more abnormalities in the genital area where it's like, uh, we don't know what it is. Yeah. And that's the thing with intersex. They want to, when babies are born and they have intersex conditions, the doctors want to come in and say, oh, we need to make, normalize them. They need to fit in a box rather than letting us be and letting us grow up and decide for ourselves what we want done with whatever that is. How have you seen conservative Christians who don't understand or exposed to or accept intersex people wrestle with? You know, what have you seen people doing to wrestle with intersex people or explain it or, or how do they how do they think about it? I guess what do they expect you to do? <laughs> <laughs> I, this is what I always think. The first time I heard your story, I was like, what does your family want from you? Like what do they expect you to do? I think they Whatever, when you're born, whatever the doctor says you are, that's what they want you to live by. So if you're intersexed and even if you had surgeries or whatever, you're supposed to stay in that box and you're just supposed to be whatever, like I was designated a girl. Whatever they picked me. Whatever they picked when you were born. Well, that's what God made you. No, because when I grew up, I grew a beard and I turned into this. So God made this. But they want to say, no, God you know, you always hear God doesn't make mistakes. No, he doesn't. So God made me. But just because as a child, this was what the doctor or whoever or whatever decided I was, doesn't mean that my genetic makeup that God was in control of, you know, that's another part of the Bible. God weaved you together in the womb and he knows. So God weaved me together in the womb and he knew I was going to grow up and look like this. So God knew. It's so funny that you go into a, a women's bathroom and you get harassed and assaulted and told to leave because people look at you and see a man and then they're expecting you to live as a woman. Mm -hmm. It's just like there's no winning. No, there wasn't. Like for years, I would not use a public bathroom. Yeah. I would, I stopped at gas stations because they had single stalls. Yeah. So I had to find ways to navigate through life. So that I wouldn't get harassed. Because, you know, there's been many times, you know, technically by the way they wanted me to live, I was a female. I didn't look female. So women would walk in the restroom and they'd be like, and they'd look, did I walk in the wrong restroom? What are you doing in here? This is women, you know. And But it made me uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. So I yeah. just started, I'm like, okay, I'll just find a gas station because there's a single stall. I ain't got to deal with it. And you, you end up making all these accommodations to try to live to fit into the box that somebody wanted you to fit into. You don't look like you fit in that box, but somehow you're supposed to bend yourself and fit in that box. And that was the really difficult part of my life. 
because I went to the courthouse, changed my name to Jeffrey, and my entire life changed. <laughs> because little kids didn't point and stare at me and say, is that a guy or a girl? Hmm. You know, there was an incident. I was 16 years old. I was in Virginia. And my aunt and uncle had taken me to an auction. And I'm at the auction, and this little boy, he comes over and he's like, are you a boy or a girl? And he starts kicking me in the shins, like hard, over and over and over. Well, I was 16. And I'm like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I just sat there and let him do that to me. You know, you, you, you become, you, you become something that you don't want to be and you, it damages you. And, you know, usually when people would see and little, especially little kids and they like, is that a, and grownups too, probably think it, but little kids tend to say things out loud and you see the parent grab their hand and, like, get them away from you. Like, you've got some kind of horrible disease that they're going to catch. You know, it's not. It's just who you are, and you can't change who you are in, in that manner. So through, you know, through my life, I, you know, I came out as a lesbian, and then I was transgendered. And not, none of it, but I met some. And then when I actually met, found out I was actually intersecting the sex, and that answered a lot of questions for me because – why did I have a beard? Why did I have, why did I look so much like a man? Why did I have all these features? And then to actually meet other people that were intersexed, <laughs> it was like, wow. It was, it was a life-altering moment. You know, for years and years and years, intersex people were told, you, you're the only one like this. You'll never meet anybody like you. <laughs> the internet changed that because when the internet came up, we started connecting. We're like, holy, there's a bunch of us. <laughs> Yeah. And like, so, you know, they figured intersex is as common as being a redhead. That's pretty common. But for years, intersex people were told, oh, you're, you know, it's very, very rare. And you'll probably never, ever find anybody like you. Well, there's a lot of people like us. Yeah. So after I became Jeffrey, I became more confident and I can look people in the eye. Heck, I get up and tell my story in front of hundreds of people and people that, knew me before. They're like, I can't believe you do that. You used to not even look at anybody or talk to anybody. So in that sense, I have become a different person. I've become more confident. I don't look in the mirror and scream I'm an ugly freak of nature anymore. You know, I don't, people, I don't know what people think. It's like God made us. They made us. He made us like this. So why would God not love us when he created us? You know, so that part of Christianity, I don't get because God made me and I have a place at the table. Until a few years ago, I had no idea intersex people even existed. I took biology at a small private Christian school. I'm positive they didn't cover it there. But even when I talked to friends who went to a public school, even recently, we're like, hey, do you know about intersex people? And they're like, what? <laughs> right. Of course, growing up in church, you know, you hear about Genesis and God created them male and female, and that's sort of it. That's the deal. We've got two options. I wish I could say I felt that way because I think it would be better. But I had learned about intersex people years before when I was studying psychology, getting my master's. And we it was just kind of an aside, like, oh, by the way, these people exist who don't fit the category of male or female. So it was just kind of like an aside in my classes that was kind of brought up to us many times. But 
There's a real difference between having an intellectual knowledge that a segment of the population exists and thinking, oh, that's a really small percentage of the population. And like having a heart knowledge of the existence of these people and realizing how important they are as human beings and what they have to contribute. Sitting across the table from Jeffrey and and hearing him share his story, it was impossible for me not to at least try and imagine what it would be like to be in his shoes, to be raised in the church, to be not fitting into this gender binary that is so often presented. And, and just, I mean, you heard it in his story, just the profound difficulty of that. And I think as Christians, like we, we, can't, we can't ignore his story. We can't just set it aside. We have to actually wrestle with this and wrestle with the text. And, and how, do we, how do we understand someone like Jeffrey in light of Scripture? Yeah, and I think there's two sides of the coin of how to think about that. One is from a pastoral perspective about what, what does care of the soul of, a tr- of an intersex person look like? And then the other side of the coin is what intersex people have to contribute to us hmm. and what we can learn from them and the pastoral care that they have to offer us and missing out on missing out on that segment of human experience. Hmm. That's what comes to mind when I listen to his story. It's not like, oh, it's you know, it's both sides of that. It's we need to provide a space for him and it's oh, wow, this is a person who has a lot to give to God's church. Yeah, yeah, and frankly, so much of the church has been missing out, I think, because we've, we've been uncomfortable with the question. You know, Jeffrey brought up his experience of, of trying to find a bathroom to use. Can't make everybody happy. <laughs> like, everybody's judging which bathroom he should use, and how can that person, who has so much to give to the church, and we're not even, like, letting them use the bathroom. When I think about this subject, I cannot help but bring to mind what Jesus says in the parable of the lost sheep, because it is so easy for us to say, oh, this is just a small number of people. Let's just focus on those who are clearly male and clearly female, because that's more clear and it's easier to understand. It is so easy for us to do this, but I want to read something for you because I think that Jesus's words speak so much better than any of ours on this subject as many or all others. <laughs> Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Isn't this what we love about the Christian faith is this this message of like the, the gospel is good news for everybody and that it is available for everybody, no matter who you are or what you've done. Like this is this is at the heart of the whole thing. And I think when the one sheet makes us uncomfortable and so we wanna say, 
let's let's deal with the 99 sheep and let's ignore this 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 thing that makes us uncomfortable and that we don't know what to do with and we don't know how to handle those are the times when we are not walking with Jesus hmm. because Jesus is going out and saying i'm going to leave you here in this in this place which actually in the gospel of luke the word in the greek is is the same word for wilderness Hmm. Like I'm going to leave you here in the wilderness and there's all kinds of theological overtones <laughs> yeah. being left in the wilderness <laughs> and I am going to go out and I am going to find this sheep. And I think that for those of us who want to be with Jesus, we can't say, oh, it's complicated. You know, let's just stick with trying to understand sexuality in the terms of clearly male and clearly female, because I don't think that's where we find Jesus. In order to answer some of our questions that we had about intersex people in the Bible, Alicia called up Megan DeFranza. Today, I am very happy to say that I'm here with Megan DeFranza, who uh, is a scholar. She has a PhD from Marquette University. She's a visiting researcher at Boston University. Um, and you probably know they don't just give those things out every day. Uh, she's also the co-founder of the nonprofit Intersex and Faith and recently released a documentary that she directed called Stories of Intersex and Faith. And uh, that documentary right now is being shown at film festivals, but churches are able to request um, to be able to view it in their churches as well through her website. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with her today because her work's meant a lot to me personally. Um, and her book, which is called Sex Difference in Christian Theology, is such a like um, deep scholarly work. It's the kind of thing that um, just if you want to read one book about intersex and understand the theology, the theological history uh, from a Catholic and Protestant perspective, the bi biology, the history of how people have understood intersex, it's all in that one book. I started researching sex differences really because of my own experience growing up in a very conservative uh, evangelical church where women didn't pass the offering plate, much less get behind the pulpit or do anything like that. I had no professors of theology who were women, um, so, but I had this deep thinking mind and passion to answer lots of deep theological questions, so I began my research on sex differences really to understand my own calling and figure out if I was allowed to serve God as a theologian, because my Greek professor in college told me that would be a violation of First Timothy 2. Uh, so even though it led me eventually to people for whom the questions about male and female are really inadequate questions, um, and here I'm talking about uh, intersex people or people with differences of sex development whose bodies display characteristics of both male and female um, in one way or another. That's an overarching term for a number of different ways that the body can develop. Um, that really challenged my perspective on male and female because I thought that's all there was. Yeah, that's really tough when you kind of have, well, God created them male and female, and then you come across some biological situations that you don't know. Like, could you give us maybe one example 
of what what that looks like, something that challenged your understanding of what it means to be created male and female? So one of the most common kinds, one of the most common intersex traits is androgen insensitivity. And you have to like remember back to eighth grade biology class where you probably learned that boys have XY chromosomes and girls have XX chromosomes. Well, sometimes a baby will start with XY chromosomes, which will develop into testes. But if the cells of the body can't process androgens, testosterone, um, in other words, if it's insensitive to those hormones, then the body is not going to develop like a typical baby boy. It's actually going to develop more like a typical baby girl. Um, so on the outside, you have a baby born who looks female, um, but often at puberty, these kids uh, don't menstruate, and that's when they're eventually discovered, oh, wait a minute, you don't actually have a vagina, or you have a short vagina and no cervix and no uterus, and you actually have testes, but they're not usually told that because <laughs> the medical community thinks that's going to freak them out. Um, so... They're not even told often. Oftentimes, uh, intersex people find out as adults when they come across their medical records, um, because doctors really, doctors told parents that they thought it would be easier on the child not to tell them. But kids are really smart and they know when they're being raised around a big secret. They know if they have to go to extra doctor visits that are different than the ones that their friends go to. So that's one very common kind of intersex. And you can have that reversed where you have a baby with XX chromosomes, which is your typical female, and ovaries. But uh, typical females also have testosterone circulating in our bodies, um, coming usually from the adrenal glands. And so if those adrenal glands pump out more than what's typical testosterone for a female, that baby will develop some masculine characteristics as well. And that's actually the most common reason that some kids are born in such a way where the doctor looks at their genitals at birth and says, I don't know if this is a boy or a girl, what we sometimes call ambiguous genitals. Um, and that's got a big medical name called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So we don't have to talk about all the medicine, but those are just two examples. And they're the two most common kinds of uh, intersex traits. Yeah, it's um it's really complicated when you start diving in and I'm thinking back to my days before I kind of came to view this differently and one of the things that I just kind of did which I'm not real happy about now but I just thought well there's so few people who are like this so why are we going to like change our own theology for just a few people? Have you heard, have you had people say things like that? That's a very common response. And there's a lot of debate about how many intersex people are there? Which of these biological variations are we going to count? So it's very difficult to get good numbers and most numbers are a range, but the upper end of that range is uh, 1.7% of the human population. So that's actually a pretty high number of people with char these character traits, though many of them don't discover them until later on in life, maybe at an infertility clinic or through other um, exams and, and things. So, yeah, it's a lot more common than we would think. <laughs> if you have a 
church that has 100 people, your statistical probability, you know, would say that you would have at least one intersex person in your congregation. Um, that's actually something that pastors need to be thinking about as we talk about male and female from the pulpit, as we divide up for Bible study groups and retreats and all sorts of things that are divided by sex in so many churches, um, that there are people who aren't going to fit in the men's Bible study or the women's Bible study. Now, they'll probably just choose based on the gender that they identify with and how they present themselves in the world, and most people won't know about it. Um, but it is helpful when pastors teach their congregations about these things. At this point, Megan references Jesus's words in Matthew 19. He talks about three different kinds of eunuchs, and the first is a born eunuch. Now, we think the details of what she said fit a lot better in a podcast we're going to do later that's in-depth on Matthew 19. So we're going to save that for now, but it is important to understand that Jesus had a concept of a born eunuch. These are people who aren't able to reproduce and maybe aren't interested in marriage, but there's still a lot of other questions about these people that we don't have the answer to. We do know some of these things, and we know that Jesus had a concept of these people, and also that the Jewish people had a concept of them, and they knew that they were around, as did the rabbis. It was a well-established idea and understanding within the culture at the time. It's important to note that these people do not fit the Genesis narrative of creation, because they're not able to reproduce, and because they're not interested in marriage. But yet they did have a concept, and we can learn some things about how Jesus and the writers of the Bible thought about born eunuchs. And so what I was told originally, my original thought was, well, looking at Genesis, this must be a result of the fall. But looking at this passage where Jesus talks about eunuchs, he quotes Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about male and female in marriage, but he doesn't talk about eunuchs as if they're a problem. He actually uses the example of eunuchs to make an analogy for a radical kind of discipleship. He says, some people make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can, or I like to say, let anyone accept this who has any idea what Jesus is talking about. But there were people in the first century who were castrating themselves to show their devotion to gods and goddesses in the ancient world. And here Jesus is saying, you can make yourself a eunuch to follow him for the kingdom of heaven. And some early Christians took him literally on that, which is why it took the church a really long time to convince people, hey, don't actually take Jesus literally when he talks about making yourself a eunuch. Um, that just means become a monk, right? <laughs> so, But it took them a really long time to get people to not take Jesus literally because there were so many other religious cults in which that was a thing. Um, but Jesus doesn't talk about eunuchs as a result of the fall right when he's quoting Genesis 1 and 2. So that was something that gave me pause and made me look back and say, hmm, is there another way of thinking about the creation of male and female in Genesis 1 that that is a theological lens that doesn't sweep intersex people under the rug and doesn't sweep this difficult verse from Jesus under the rug. Can we find a theological lens that incorporates all of scripture instead of just 
fixating on Genesis one and saying that that's the beginning and end of the conversation. That makes sense. And what I, I really, one of the things I really love about that is it points out just how easy it is for us to sometimes miss really important things in the text because it's so easy to just fly over that, but you're, you're sitting with this text to a, to a way of like understanding what the text is actually saying instead of putting our assumptions on it about, Oh, this is about the fall. You're not putting that assumption on and you're saying, actually, Jesus isn't saying it that way. I, I just want to pause on that because I feel like that's so important when our anxiety gets involved. It's really easy for us to see things in the text that aren't there. And we have a really bad history as human beings thinking about people with minority human experiences through the lens of the fall. I like to talk about left-handedness. Um, you know, my father-in-law was left-handed and went to parochial school and the nuns used to whack him on the left hand with a ruler anytime he tried to pick up his pencil with his left hand um, to try to force him to become right-handed because left in Latin is sinistra, from which we get the English word sinister. In the ancient world, they made all sorts of assumptions about a person's character based on their embodiment. Red hair, if you look, just Google, you know, red hair is a bad omen. You'll find it all over many different cultures because it's a minority human experience. And we like to say that intersex may be as common as redheadedness globally, um, which makes things a little more visible because you can't see someone's intersex variation, but red hair is a little easier to spot. Um, and you'll find many more redheads in Scotland than you will in South Africa. And that's true of different intersex variations that they have prevalence in certain ethnic groups in different parts of the world. Um, so again, thinking about that's a lens that we bring into the world and to the text that when someone's experience is different than mine, that must be bad. And so I'm going to create a theological perspective to reinforce however I am in the world as the good way of being in the world and whoever anybody else is, especially if they're in the minority as a negative thing, not what God intended. But that's an assumption we're bringing. So now we're getting back to that original question of what is the theological significance of the first two chapters of Genesis? So one of the things I did, again, to check myself was to just look harder at those passages. And particularly in Genesis chapter one, the creation account, um, we see God creating the world um, and the description in Genesis 1 is in very broad brush categories. So God creates the land and the sea. Um, there's no mention of like deltas or rivers. There's really only just this basic water, land, air category. Um, he separates light from darkness, but there's and the day and the night and declares them good, but there's nothing about dawn and dusk in the text. He creates creatures that birds that fly fish that swim in the sea, and other creatures that move on the ground. Those are the three categories named in Genesis 1. And yet we can all think, and I'll, I'll give you a little test, Alicia. <laughs> can you think of an animal that doesn't fit into either the category of birds that fly, fish that swim, 
or animals that creep on the ground. Uh, yeah, penguins, frogs, newts. Newts are super cool. Uh, yeah, and then there's like things in the ocean that breathe oxygen, like whales, dolphins. Mm-hmm. Those are all pretty cool animals, too. They are pretty cool. Lobsters. I live in Boston, so we have to mention lobsters. They're in the sea, but they creep like things that creep on the ground. Um, so, so the question I give to many people when I'm able to talk to them in person is, have you ever heard a sermon that says, look, oh no, there's a frog. It's a sign of the fall. Look, there's a penguin. There's another sign of the fall. Look, there's an ostrich. That's another sign of the fall because they don't fit in to the three categories of creatures named in Genesis chapter one. That's something to think about because it just feels wrong to call penguins a result of the fall. <laughs> it just doesn't. No, they're so cute. <laughs> yeah, it, this is one of those other things that you have brought to mind. And I remember hearing this and I believe the first time I heard it was from you. And just being like, I mean, that's a really simple thing, but I was just like, how did I not see that? I've been looking for a way that conservatives have been critiquing this idea because it's really difficult to, for me to even come up with an argument that says like, that it's not true. And as I've been looking, I haven't found anybody who actually is taking the argument seriously and, and giving a reason for this is why this doesn't fit. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody who literally like I expressed this and he was like, oh, that's cute. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Cute. Like this is an actual theological argument. I was reading someone else who's a very well-known person in this conversation. And he just said, well, we need to listen to this argument. And a little bit, I felt like dismissively said, you know, you might not like it, but you should listen to it. But, you know, really, she should talk about this other verse. So without ever actually critiquing what you said, it's just like a pivot to another text without ever saying, are we actually looking at Genesis right? Because we've said these categories are exclusive. I haven't seen anyone take the argument that you're making seriously. Oh, and that's really the test of good interpretation is, are we being consistent? So if we're not interpreting anything that doesn't fit in Genesis 1 as a part of the fall, then why are we assuming that anyone who falls in between the category of male and female is a result of the fall? So either anything that's not in the text is a result of the fall (laughs) or not, right? And so this was the big challenge for me is to think about, well, is there another way of looking at Adam and Eve than this just ideal male-female couple. Um, And so I started wrestling with other ways of thinking about them. I mean, really, when when you look at the animals, I think the author of Genesis is painting in really broad brushstrokes. So probably most animals in the sea are fish. Probably, you know, most creatures will fit into one of those three categories, you know, Genesis is not an exhaustive inventory of every good creature God created. But that was a new way for me of thinking about the text because I was raised to take Genesis very literally as if it were science. 
and to realize that this is a theological text making a theological point about our place in the universe and God's care and love for creation and the goodness of creation and the, um, God's design for relationship with humans, it really challenged me to rethink how I'd been raised to see Adam and Eve. Yeah. So when you see the when you see the text now that says you know he created him them in his image, male and female he created them. Do you when you look at that now do you think oh they were intending to say there's only male and female? I don't because I don't think that we're just talking about sun and moon and not stars. I think the stars. <laughs> are also part of God's good creation. I think dawn and dusk, I mean, that's my favorite part of the sky. And I think many other people's too, sunrise and sunset. And they're not mentioned in Genesis 1. And so we can see that these in-between spaces, the space between night and day, it's not named, but who would say that it's a result of the fall? Like it's, that's just not something that we would say. Um, and so I started to ask, should we look at Adam and Eve as this model that every human being should fit into this model because God only makes two models of being human? Or is the author talking about the statistical majority of humans who do fit into the category of male and female without saying that any human who's born in between male and female is necessarily a result of the fall? Um, why can't we use the same interpretation for the humans as we do for the other categories of creation? Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me, especially when I think about um, sometimes you'll notice in like the New Testament, they'll refer to um, maybe the prophets as Elijah. And they're really talking, especially in the book of Revelation, like they might really be talking about all the prophets, but they just say Elijah because Elijah was like the best known of the prophets or all the law. And they'll just say Moses because Moses is the kind of quintessential example they think of. And really the Hebrew Testament has two sections, three sections, the law, the prophets and the writings, but they'll refer to the whole thing as the law and the prophets. So, but that doesn't mean that they're intending all of them. It's kind of like when you dig into the Hebrew language, you see that this is just kind of something that is really common in the way that they use language. And I had already actually been taught that in seminary. And so when I, but it had never been applied to this. So when you said that, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like it's all coming together. Yeah, it is a common Hebrew way of talking for sure. I'm talking about the whole by using just one or two parts of that. So I thought, okay, are they the model or are they the majority? Are they the best? Is this what God really wants? Or are these the humans at the beginning of the story? Um, I like to say that Genesis is a really important text, but it's not the whole Bible. And I admitted that really I started my seminary and graduate study research based trying to answer questions about myself, about women in ministry, about our can we really say that some things are true of all women in all cultures in all points in history and that these other things are true of all men in all cultures and other points of history? Because I kept hearing people talk about gender in ways that I didn't relate to as a very devout evangelical young woman. 
Um, and so through all those questions, I discovered, yes, there are people for whom male and female is not, you know, an easy answer or an easy question. And then I did all this theological work that we just talked about. And then I came back to realizing, you know what, this isn't just about intersex people. This is about all of us. I felt so much in my life and things I internalized, sermons I heard, books I read, um, that I needed to be searching for biblical womanhood, whatever that was. So I needed to get back to some sort of idealized vision of what it means to be a Christian as a woman. And men have this other job of trying to get back to some model that we all project onto Adam and Eve in the garden. And But when we start to read them as the beginning of the story, we realize that they're not these archetypes. <laughs> I don't need to be like Eve. Men don't need to be like Adam. We, we don't. God is not calling us to be anyone other than who we are. And all of us are called to be conformed to the image of Jesus, no matter whether we're male, female, intersex, trans, gay, queer, all along the spectrum and every other identity, right? We can go down the ethnic identities, uh, right? Jesus was a Palestinian Jew in the first century, wasn't a white guy. Um, and yet I'm to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that the goal has never been biblical womanhood. The goal is always Jesus for all of us. And it was like this weight that I had on my back, like this impossible ideal that I was never going to be enough. I was never going to be feminine enough because I really love philosophy and theology. You know, all of these things, all of the ways that we judge ourselves against some model, um, that that was never the point. <laughs> Like God wants a relationship with each of us, wants us each to grow in virtue and holiness and to become the healthiest version of ourselves that we can be in relationship with God because of what Jesus has done and modeled for us. And so my quest to understand why I just didn't fit into the, you know, how everybody else talked about women, um, finally landed there. It took me a long time. <laughs> We're talking six years of seminary and seven years in a doctoral program, right? So even though my book is long, I'll tell you that it'll save you lots of years of research. Um, but it really was liberating for me to realize that I don't need to get back to some archetype in the garden, that God is calling us forward through Christ into this new creation, which has echoes of the old creation. If you read Revelation, there's a lot of echoes of the trees at the beginning, but they're not the same trees. There's, there's lots of things that are similar and different. Um, and I think that's what we see in the new creation, similarity and difference. So I don't think we're trying to get back to the garden. I don't think Adam and Eve are our model anymore. I think Jesus is our model. <laughs> Is there a connection between being, between what you've been speaking about of intersex and then people who, I mean, some people in the intersex community see themselves as part of the LGBTQ community and some do not. Mm -hmm. So yep, is, true. is there a connection between 
the, what we've learned from the biology of intersex and what you've taught us theologically about male and female and transgender people and same-sex marriage, you know, those of us who are mm-hmm. with the LGB side of things. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I didn't want to touch that for a really long time because I thought, no one's ever going to hire me. And then I lost my job and realized, hey, why, why don't I just <laughs> take a look at this more closely? You know, I... Intersex was one question. Uh, Same-sex relationships is related to the question about Adam and Eve, but you also have to deal with other texts. And I do that in my two views, in my chapters in the two views on homosexuality, the Bible and the church. Mm -hmm. And then looking at the question of uh, transgender identities. Um, The only difference right now in the definition between an intersex person who has a trans experience, and and that's not the majority of intersex people, but there are some who transition from the sex they were assigned at birth. Um, but the only difference, according to the dictionary, <laughs> is yeah. that trans people can't identify an intersex trait. A mm. doctor can't identify an intersex trait for a trans person, um, which has put a tremendous burden on a number of trans people because when a doctor says, yes, I see this biological variation, people can say, look, I'm not crazy. This isn't all in my head. I'm not making this up. I'm not choosing to live this way. Um, And the problem is we are really at the beginning of our scientific understanding of gender identity. There's still a lot we don't know. I think that what we've learned from intersex variations is that there is a biological connection between gender identity and the body and that it's not so neatly organized. In some intersex traits, you have almost no experiences of people who want to transition from their sex assigned at birth. In other intersex traits, it's a statistically larger number, which points toward biological influence of various kinds. And I'll spare you the science at this point. But, you know, then you have people like my friend um, Donovan Ackley, Dr. Ackley, um, used to teach at Azusa Pacific University. Um was the chair of their uh, philosophy and theology department, beloved professor, came out as trans in 2013, I believe, and lost his job at the Evangelical College. Um, and then years later had a doctor say, I don't know what kind of intersex variation you have, but you are definitely intersex. Like your body is clearly not w- just male or female. But nobody was running back to say, Dr. Ackley, we're so sorry. Come and have your job back after all we put you through and put your family through. So a lot of people will say that intersex people get a pass because they were born that way, but trans people don't because they're choosing to live in rebellion against God and nature. And I mean, these are really painful things. I'm, I'm quoting people, obviously. These are not the things that I think. Yeah, and it's very painful. Um, But sometimes it's just that we don't know what those connections are yet. I think we're going to find that many trans experiences are rooted in biology, but I don't think the science has brought us there yet. So I think we need a lot of humility and a lot of compassion um, and treating people as valuable children of God, um, no matter what their experiences of gender identity. 
So that's the shortest version I can give you. <laughs> get the new book that's coming out um, and you'll get the longer version in that. It's called Understanding Transgender Identities, Four Views. So it's with Baker Academic and it's four scholars who are invited to present our perspectives on um, is God's creation a binary or is there room for more? So some of what we've already been discussing, you have a sneak peek into my chapter. I think it's going to be a great volume and very helpful. I participated in the, a similar book with Zondervan, Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible and the Church, which many people have found very helpful. I love these multi-view books. I think they really help people think for themselves because they can hear um, trained theologians talking with one another graciously um, and yet rigorously. So that's coming out this year. I think you can already pre-order it actually on Baker's website as well as on Amazon. Okay, what was the title? Give us the title again. Understanding Transgender Identities for Views. That's great. I'm so glad they're doing that and that you're participating in that. That's a that's a really necessary book. <laughs> it's really overdue. <laughs> we needed it several years ago. You know, one of the things I'm coming away with as we, as you spoke to Megan, is you have, you have these things in scripture that, that on the surface look very clear. And coming from a conservative church environment, I'm very used to that kind of language of like, oh, the Bible is clear on X, Y, and Z topics. And, and what Megan's done for us is she's, I think she's really honored the scripture by letting it, it say and not say what it intends to say and not say. I think this is this is really important in how we we approach other scripture as we're engaging this question on not just intersex folks um, but also transgender folks and people who are attracted to the same sex. Um, like we we can't just say, "Oh, well, the Bible is clear and shut the door." When on the intersex question, at least, you know, we can see clearly biologically that that isn't the case. Yeah, and there's even reasons to question that simplistic take on scripture. Lots and lots of reasons to question that simplistic take on scripture. And one of the things that always strikes me as well is that that attitude in itself closes people off to seeking further knowledge of scripture instead of opening themselves up to saying, what more might God be trying to reveal and what more can I dig into the text to understand? And that's what Megan's experience opened up for her is to say, you know, I need to dig into this text more closely and I need to try to put those preconceptions aside for a second and try to understand this text better. Yeah, it excites me to think that there could be a richer experience of scripture, that that there there could be so much more going on that, that could paint a picture of God that maybe is better than we thought possible. Amen. Yeah. It's incredible when your understanding of God expands hmm. and your understanding of God's creation. And I think that's what excites me so much about this podcast. Yeah, and we are we are just getting started. We have so many exciting and interesting and thoughtful guests coming to you. We are going to be unpacking all the Bible verses you know and love. Sodom and Gomorrah, Leviticus, we're doing it. We're going all the places. 
you enjoyed this episode, if you learned something, if you think other people would benefit from us, would you do us a favor and just share about it on your social media feeds? We need some help getting the word out because we think this will be really beneficial for a lot of people. Hey, Steve and I would love to meet you in person. And we'd also love to tell you about a conference that's going on in Seattle that we're going to be at. If you're able to get yourself to Seattle November 7 to 9, please join us for the Reformation Projects Conference. It's called the Reconcile and Reform Conference. And there's going to be all kinds of people talking about what biblical LGBTQ inclusion looks like, what it looks like theologically, what it looks like practically. And it's also a great chance to hang out with some queer Christians and some LGBTQ affirming Christians. The Reformation Project values a love for God, a love for the Bible, and a love for the church. So if that sounds like your type of thing, we would love to see you there. Details are in the show notes, so if you're interested in registering, you can find a link with all the information there. Before you go, I want to leave you with a question. This question will help you to tangibly think about the many different concepts we talked about in this episode. If Jeffrey, the person we interviewed early in this episode, was a really close friend of yours, someone you loved and cared about, how would you encourage them to think about their gender, and how would you hope that they would present themselves? Uh, what gender would you hope they would present themselves as in the world? And of course, how is that informed by your faith and your understanding of scripture? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this question. Hit us up on social media, send us messages. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening.